if someone's going to leave our program, I expect them to go through, get their degree from Endicott, and maybe in a grad year, go on and take a shot at D1. Prior to that, I think I'd have an issue with personally. That was Endicott College coach Brian Haley. He's our guest on the Base Path Podcast. Welcome to the Base Path Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan, along with co-host Matt Feld. Today's guest is the coach of our number one team in the D3 coaches poll in New England, Brian Haley, who has led Endicott College to a 16-4 and record. Coach, thanks so much for joining the pod. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and doing what you guys do. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's on the way to being a really special season for you guys. What, what's gone right for you? And when did you kind of start to get a sense that this team could really compete for a D3 national championship? Yeah, I mean, we have a pretty good group of guys coming back from last year or back from last year. So I think going in, everyone had that expectation of trying to get to that World Series, which is our expectation and our goal. We also added a few younger players, freshman class that are solid, a couple transfers. So I think everyone was kind of on board that we had some kind of unfinished business from last year. We lost a couple of close games in the Super Regional and wanted to kind of get back to that point and try to go on to the World Series. So I think we felt like we had a good group coming back that could do it. Coming into the year, just with the way the landscape has changed across college baseball, we sure could talk about it until you're blue in the face in terms of there's the transfer portal and the constant movement of players. Just based on where you guys are at as a program, can you just speak to where you're at from like going after guys in the transfer portal versus being concerned about guys potentially leaving? How do you kind of battle that as a head coach? Yeah, that's a great question. We don't really go after anyone in the transfer portal. Our success has really come from the young men that have reached out to us to let us know they have an interest. Usually there's a friend that's at Endicott. There's a family connection in the area. So we kind of just go after those who really have an interest in Endicott and explore from there. So that's kind of our tact when it comes to the transfer portal. Do I worry about losing guys? Yeah, and I think that's one of those things where you feel conflicted because you want to develop your players to make the best they can possibly be. And that's what we do here. We're all about player development and, and development as a whole. And then when they get to that point where they could probably go help a D1 team, now they see them in the summer and maybe you want to take them. So at that point, you feel a little bit conflicted because you don't want to lose them. I guess where I kind of would draw the line as a coach personally, and it's my own personal opinion, is that there's a, an element of loyalty that needs to be there, that needs to be there through their, their undergraduate. So to me, if someone's going to leave our program, I expect them to go through, get their degree from Endicott, and maybe in a grad year, go on and take a shot at D1. Prior to that, I think I'd have an issue with personally. Well, that's kind of how I feel about it. One of those guys, one of those types of guys, Caleb Spur, Spur is, has been unbelievable for you this year. I heard he is headed to UConn next year. How does that come? I, I know Coach Penders, especially over the last couple of years, has really kind of dove into that transfer portal dynamic and kind of rounded out his roster with a lot of those types of guys. How does that relation, how, how have you forged that relationship with him to kind of get Caleb that opportunity? And what's that communication like with Coach Penders? So I've known Jim since I was at Columbia a long time ago. Great guy. I think one of the most respected coaches in New England, if not the most respected. So John Rush McDonald, his recruiting coordinator, pitching coach, was the first one to reach out and, and start that conversation. And essentially, after Caleb discussed it with me and lets me know his intentions, and I was just letting them know, honestly, how I feel about the young man and the player. I can't speak anything 
praise for Caleb as a person, as a player. Did the same thing as I did with Josh and then Jim about that. So I think in the end, you just try to be really honest with these coaches who are investigating your players. I, I think that's the way summer coaches should be too. And the AAU coaches should be too. I think we just have to be really, really truthful and honest about what we think and what their their strengths are, what some of their shortcomings are, and what they need to work on to get better and, and try to help these young men out. And I think in the end, it's really about the young man finding the right fit and figuring out what's best for him. That's all we're trying to do is support them through that. So I think Jim and I kind of work together with Josh. I'm 100% supportive of Caleb. Again, he's graduating to Mendicott in May. He'll have a chance to continue to play there, maybe for one or two years, get an advanced degree there. So I'm certainly supportive of Caleb. When it comes to recruiting guys, what what's your overall approach and strategy in terms of finding the guys that you guys get really high in talent that can obviously play consistently at a high level? How do you balance the guys that you guys can go after versus the guys that maybe just might be a cut above and as a result might be going to to local Division One schools like a Northeastern or, or maybe even a UConn or a BC as opposed to kids that are just a cut, cut below? How do you guys kind of find that almost happy, sweet spot medium that's allowed you to be so successful? I think we're really aggressive with the guys who might be, quote unquote, too good. The guy that might get picked up by a high level school, a, a D2 school, and just let them know what we have to offer and get them on campus. Our campus is gorgeous. We're really fortunate, blessed to have one of the, the nicest campuses around. Our facilities are top notch, too. So I think we have a shot at those type of players once they're here and they see the value. And then it really comes down to, okay, do they have a better chance to play here, there, and when? What are they looking for as a major? And, and kind of putting it all together. But we are really aggressive with the, the best players of possibly that we see really throughout the course of the summer. And I see we, myself and Coach Harry Elringer, has been with him now for, I think, six years, a former player. He gets after it on the recruiting circuit. We try to see the best and, and try to bring him to campus and go from there. Now, there's a huge group that don't want to come to campus. You know, they're already have an interest in D1 or D2, and they're just never going to visit a D3 campus, which is certainly fine. But the young men that do have their eyes and their ears open to D3 that are really good players, those are the ones we target. It seems like at the college level or really any level, coaches love to kind of be in control of their own destiny, and, and part of that is with the recruiting and as a result, it seems like at the D1 level, that timeline has kind of moved up where you get a lot of freshmen, certainly sophomores that are committing to these D1 programs. And whenever we talk to D3 coaches, I always wonder if they stress about that timeline, that it's a little bit later and you're not rounding out that recruiting class as early as you'd probably like. Is that something you stress about or has the timeline changed for D3 programs as well? It's definitely changed for us as well. Actually, in a way, like it because it clears the path, so to speak. You're going to have a lot of young men that commit early and do their thing. And then those classes get full really quickly. So as you're having conversations with the higher level players that are still around, I think at that point, they're pretty aware that most of the D1s are done if not looking for one arm. Or the D2s are just wrapping up. So at that point, they have a pretty good sense that their best options are the high level D3 schools and some of the D2 schools and anything. So honestly, it's helped in that regard to, I think, provide clarity for the players, what's available to them at that time. So I, I've actually appreciated that. We have early decisions, so I think we try to round out our class late October into early November. At that point, we're pretty much done with the guys we're trying to actively recruit. Hmm. All but three of your players are from New England, and those three players, one's from New Jersey and two are from New York, so it's not like you that you found them in Finland and Poland. 
they're all, they're all pretty local up here in the in the Northeast. How much pride do you take in, in trying to showcase that you could compete nationally strictly with a local recruiting strategy? Yeah, I mean, I'm from New England. I'm from Connecticut. I certainly do take pride in being from New England. I, I love having New England players. It, it fits, obviously, here because we are a regional school. We do get a scattering of, of young men from outside of New England, but the core of our recruiting is Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and we'll get a scattering of some of the other New England states. But those are the three main ones. Yeah, no, I think I take pride in that being in New England or dealing with the elements of the weather. And I can go out to California and try to beat up some teams that are a little different than us. And same with Florida and wherever else we may go in Texas. So, no, I love... I love the New England recruiting base. It's also a smaller area. I, I worked at Columbia for quite some time, was traveling the country, which is quite a quite an endeavor over the course of the summer. I, I like being able to go and go out and get after it, find some players in my backyard, backyard being New England, and then come home and be with my family. So it's a little bit easier lifestyle too. I know that you prioritize recruiting guys or or at least developing guys that are physically and mentally tough competitors. What, when you're on the recruiting trail, how, what are you looking for? Like, what, how do you see that play out on a baseball field? You really only see it if you're watching like a high stakes game. I think my favorite events to recruit are state playoff games, Legion tournaments. And I know Legion has just thinned out a little bit over the years, which saddens me to be quite honest with you. I was a Connecticut Legion guy and still have a lot of pride. In that. I still see the pride there, but. You know, if you can see someone in a high stakes, really, really pressure packed environment, see how they handle it, good or bad, because they're not always going to succeed in that. You're still going to recruit guys that don't succeed because you see something in them. That's the best environment for me. Now, it's not as available now with obviously club ball and everything going on in the summertime where no one at times knows the score and no one knows the game ended. So it's a little bit challenging in that setting, but we do the best we can just to go around value with the guys in that setting as well. But Nothing, I don't like anything better than being in a high stakes, like state playoff game or a Legion championship or something that, that kind of matters to all the players in the field more than just their own exposure. How do you think your players would describe Coach Haley? That's a good question. I think I, you'd have to ask them, but I, I think at this point, I'm very different than I may have been with my earlier class. I got here in 2008. I think if you ask them, they might say, intense and driven to win and maybe a little crazy. You know, you may hear that from some of those younger guys, older now, I should say. I think this group understands that I'm really, really passionate about making sure that they're going to become the best person they can be. As I've gotten married and had children, and my oldest is 15, my youngest is eight. I have two sons, two daughters. I think it really changes the way you look at life and look at your job and look at competitions. But I think as we go through this, all these guys know that like I have their back. I want the best for them in the classroom. I want the best for them outside the classroom. I'm here if they're struggling on a mental side and relationships, whatever they need, I'm there for them. And I think, I think they know I care a lot about them. And Coach all feels the same way as, as one of my former players. So I think they'll know I deeply care about them. I might deeply care about this program and baseball and that's really kind of what I'm about. I think they do recognize feel that. We have a lot of laughs together as well, so we have a lot of fun. You mentioned your fondness for Legion baseball and kind of the downsides of the, the new rise of club baseball in the summer being that one downside, like you said, not everybody knows the score. They're not as focused on winning and losing. You don't know when the game's over. The trade-off, I guess, in defense of those clubs is there's n- more indoor organ- indoor facilities. So it seems like 
Uh, New England baseball in general, guys are maybe getting more D1 offers than they probably were two, 10 years ago. How have you noticed the level of play? How has it impacted that over, over the last 10, 15 years? It's tough. I'm stuck to like play more multiple sports. Go play football, go play hockey, go play baseball or, or whatever three sports you want to fill in. I've always felt that way. I think obviously we're dealing with a lot more specialization now. I think it can be good and bad. I, I certainly think they're developing technical skills that they didn't used to get because they were playing other sports, but I think they're lacking it sometimes. And I don't know if everyone, but I think if you're just focusing on baseball and focusing on technical aspects or numbers or launch angle and specific data, you lose out on a lot of competitiveness. You lose out on a lot of how to deal with failure. You lose out on a lot of the relationship stuff that you get from being a part of a team. So I think we're lacking a little bit, maybe as a whole in developing those areas and just focusing on the indoor work. But again, the technical aspects of it certainly have improved. So I think it's like anything, there's a plus to it and a minus to it. I, I prefer the old way. I'm a little older, I guess. I'm, I'm, I don't want to say old school, but I just, I just wish more young men would play multiple sports and just fall in love with competing because that's kind of what we want with our competitors. When you're watching the game now out on the road recruiting, you kind of alluded to this earlier a little bit, but maybe what are some trends, either positive or negative, you've seen amongst youth baseball? When I refer to youth baseball, I mean high school baseball. What are some positive and negative trends that you've seen that you'd like to see on the negative side changed? I feel for these coaches, they really obviously have to help the parents understand the reality of, of their son and where he fits in, in the grand scheme of things. And I think being honest in that case is very difficult because they're paying. When someone's paying you to do a job and ultimately their, their expectations might be beyond the reality of the situation, I think it gets a little bit tainted. So I think what would be best is if, and I think they try to, like the club coaches communicate to the parents, like, listen, my job is to develop your son as a baseball player as best I can. And to be honest with college coaches about where it fits from what I know, I think the, honestly, the only people that really know where all these young men fit are the college coaches that go out and recruit and see all the players. I think those are the, it's the lighthouse, so to speak, where they're able to guide the players to the right setting. I think sometimes with the club ball, they're, they're always seeing a small sample and they don't quite understand exactly where they fit. Some people do a great job with that. Every coach is different. But I think getting back to my original point, the parents need to chill out. They need to step back and let these coaches coach coach their kids and then ultimately do the best they can for that. But understanding their dreams and goals for their son might not work out the way they want them to, but they're going to work out the right way they need to for their son based on where he's at. Because the college coach is the only ones, you know, better call them as kids. The club coach can't do that. So that's scary to what's happening now because it does affect how the the club coaches communicate with the college coaches. I don't think they can always be as honest as they want to be. And maybe the parents should stop arguing with the umpires too. That, that, Definitely. That's, <laughs> that's a bad trick. Be quiet. Just yeah. like watch. Have fun. It's your kid. Like Little League. Although I'm sure, I'm not too much social media, but I'm sure I've seen a few videos where a Little League parent is going bananas on an umpire. But oh yeah, yeah there. I think they just need to keep it in perspective. Like it's a kid's game. It's a kid. Let them play, let them have fun, let them do their thing. The umpire is a human trying to do his job, lay off him. He's doing the best he can. And what, great 2008, I wouldn't be saying that to you guys right now. I'd say that I've got to do a better job. But I think now I see it's a very difficult job. We're losing umpires left and right. There's like a shortage of umpires. And I think it's partially because they don't want to get yelled at. 
probably by parents more than coaches. So we, we have a, a culture that's it's creating some problems, I think, for the future of our sports, unfortunately. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division One, Two, and Three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. You said something when you were talking about multi-sport athletes that made me think, would you ever go out and like, so you want to see these guys compete in the most competitive environments. Would you ever go out and watch like a state tournament game of another sport of a guy that you're recruiting to kind of see how his competitiveness comes out? I have never done that typically because I have four children. So like my free time is going to be spent with my family. Yeah. My work time is going to be going hard at work but no i haven't done that so i haven't gone to like a, a football game beyond now my son's getting older my oldest so i'm gonna see some crossover while watching something like he's doing so i'll start to see some some players now but no i've never done that it's a good idea though i like the idea <laughs> uh, more so just talking to the coach and, and talking to them about what they care about and trying to get a gauge on how competitive they are but i like that idea i just don't i don't have the time to be quite honest no yeah that makes sense and when, as I'm going through like your value system here, passion for the game and physically strong, mentally strong, all those things, are there ways that you can foster that? Like, do, is there any training that you do or mental, the mental approach to the game or what, what kind of things can you do to build that at the college level? We constantly are talking about approach to the game, to life, to, to dealing with adverse circumstances. Every single young man before he comes into the program. He's getting a call from our returning players, the freshman recruits. Just a call, hey, how's it going? I'm going to come in here in two weeks. Any questions that you have? Just really trying to make everyone feel comfortable. Because I, I truly feel that it's hard when you transition to anywhere. When you get to a college campus for the first time, there's going to be some anxiety. So I think we try to alleviate some of that through these conversations and recruiting and then having players on the team reach out. And then I give them all an assignment. So the first assignment, they have to listen to a guy named Tim Ferriss, who I think has had a great podcast. I'm a big podcast guy, so it's just cool for me. I've never been on one. <laughs> uh, but Tim Ferriss has an amazing podcast, and he has an episode 319 that deals with Ryan Holiday. And Ryan Holiday wrote several books, Obstacles Away, Stillness is the Key, Ego is the Enemy. So one of those pertains to the obstacle. So what we do is we let him listen to that. And it talks all about, hey, it's going to get a little bit hairy. Like you're going to be dealing with a lot of challenges on the field, off the field, whatever. Here are four main things you can focus on. And controlling your heart rate, controlling your emotions when the time comes, making sure that when the obstacle hits, we're looking at that from a different perspective and not going into ourselves, but trying to make positive of it, focusing on the process and then embracing faith. But I think as we go through all that, they have to have a plan. So we constantly are talking about a when 
plan when the stuff hits the fan, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I will do this, this, and this. So I will be able to control my heart rate. I will be able to control my thoughts, and I will be, I'll win the situation. And if you don't have a plan, you're going to lose the situation every time. Like when the guy cuts you off in traffic, if you have an issue with that, you know you do or you don't. Well, if I don't have a plan when it happens, yeah, I'm probably not going to react. I'm going to lose that situation. So I think we're constantly talking about how to win the situation, whether it's on the field or off, by having a plan and then really practicing it. Like anything, we all have our nature and the way we're built, and we're going to react that way unless we kind of train it out of ourselves. It's a negative reaction. So we do work on that. We work on breathing quite a bit, pretty much every single day. We'll take five minutes to, to breathe in, transition out, just to kind of clear the mind, do some meditation work. But a lot of it is just, hey, who are you? What's your default reaction? How can it be better? Can you train it to be better? How do you, the, the resource imbalance, I guess, across college athletics, of course, is pretty apparent across the board. Of course, Division One to Division Three. Do you take, how much personal satisfaction do you take, I guess, in the fact that you guys have been able to be consistently successful at Endicott, which of course is great opportunities in terms of the campus location, and you have, you're a great draw. You've you kind of now at this point have, have built a program that almost recruits for itself because of how successful you guys have been on top of your hard work as a coaching staff. But from a from a discrepancy standpoint, when you look across the country, even to to schools maybe down south or on the west coast, they get to play in warmer climates, and I, I get to play and practice their outdoors in more enjoyable weather when they're preparing for the season, you must take a lot of like personal satisfaction in the respect that you guys are able to be so successful despite maybe suffering at a disadvantage in a lot of those respects. I mean, I think you probably hear this from most coaches. You can only control so much, control the controllables. I think we're actually really fortunate to have the facilities that we have and the indoor space we have. We have a great athletic performance center that was just added about five years ago for the, for the athletes, student-athletes and I think we're fortunate. I don't know where we fit in the grand scheme of things, and I don't like comparing anyway. So I think the, the great quote comparison is the thief of joy. I believe that. So I don't really get into that too much. Obviously, I notice things when I go visit schools in California or I notice things in Texas or Florida that are different. But in the end, let's make the most of what we got. I think we got it pretty good here at Endicott, I'll be honest with you. So I don't, I don't feel like there's too much of a, a disparity there. I feel really fortunate. The first person I heard say that comparison is the thief of joy is, is Kyrie Irving. I don't usually oh, like anything that comes out of his mouth. Yeah, <laughs> no, but that he's I, Teddy Roosevelt, man. Don't, I got <laughs> no, I, I know it's not Kyrie's quote, but he, he was the first guy I heard say it. And I was like, he usually doesn't say things that I like, but I did like that quote. But Kyrie got <laughs> How did you end up at Endicott fr- fr- coming from Connecticut? I played baseball at Brandeis for a legendary coach, Pete Varney, mm-hmm. uh, who actually just came up two weeks ago to work with our catchers. So blessed to have him in my life still. And then went and played some ball. I actually coached Coach V for years as a pitching coach. When I graduated, I graduated in 99 and stayed out in 2000. I'm going to give you the long, long story. Sorry. That's okay. And then went to Australia and played, came back to coach and then got a job. Mickey Oki hired me at Columbia a long time ago. In 2002, I went out there. Mick left, Paul Fernandez, great guy, took over. He left, and I was able to stay on when Brett Beretti came in at Columbia. I was him for five years before Coach Varney called me. He's like, Hales, you need to look at this job at Endicott. I'm like, never heard of it, Coach. I don't know anything about it. Tell me about it. And he told me about it. It immediately intrigued my interest. And I've always wanted to be a D3 head coach since I finished playing D3 ball at Brandeis. And then came up, it was Winter of 2008, 
got blown away by how beautiful it was. I'm a big ocean guy. I love the beach. And it was immediately like, hey, I'm loving this. And Doc Wiley, president at the time, told me about his vision for not only the college, but also athletics. And Endicott was really built through athletics, our enrollment, the male enrollment, similar to what Adrian is doing now. Endicott may have written a blueprint for that. And fell in love with the place and was fortunate to be offered the job and, and took it right away and came up. And I've been here for 15 years now. Loved every minute. Yeah, you really got to get people on campus. That's a, my, I used to have an uncle that lived... He probably lived like it was on Prince Street in Beverly. So it was probably like a quarter of a mile from the campus. I had never seen the campus like somehow it just wasn't on the way off the exit. And then one year I was in Gloucester covering a game at Endicott uh, and I was like, oh, my God, this isn't just an unbelievable experience. That's a such an advantage, I would think, once you get somebody on campus. It's got such it's a really special place. It's got like such a unique feel to it. I think people connect with it when they when they drive through the gates. It's and I I did as well. I mean, it was just like taken aback by it. Yeah. Uh, and then the people really make it. It's definitely a really, really tight knit community atmosphere. It's a social atmosphere. So it's a lot of outgoing people who enjoy getting to know each other and it's a beautiful environment. So yeah, no, I foresee myself living in Beverly here and working at Cup for some time. So I love it. Yeah. What's something that you hope Prospective players, parents, family members, who someone that comes in and watches one of one of your games, comes watch Endicott baseball play. What is something that you want them to remember about your program after they've watched you? I think they'll see we play with great energy and we play really hard. And by hard, it's on the bases, it's taking the field, it's getting down the line, defensively, getting out there flying around. And then I think that's what I take the most pride in, that our guys bring a lot of positive energy to the game and they play the game in the right way. I think we're fortunate to have really talented players too so they can execute and, you know, create some good situations for us. But in the end, when it comes down to it, our job is to teach them how to play and, you know, how to be needs on the field. And I think that's a big part of it, making sure we're respecting the opponent. We can celebrate and have a good time and do our thing, but let's do it towards each other. Let's not disrespect the opponent as we're, we're winning or celebrating. Let's make sure we're, we're lifting our team up and lifting our guys up. That's something that's really important to me. And I think the more coaches that feel that way, the better. But yeah, let's, let's, the game's changed. Way more celebration, way more fun. Awesome. Let's direct on our own team and lift up our own team, not trying to put down the other team. I think that's where it gets a little bit murky. Not good for the game. You had mentioned you were your team was disappointed with the way last season ended and kind of set the the World Series as the goal for this year. Have you found it difficult at all to try to keep guys in the moment for these March, mid-April games? Like, how can you make sure they're not overlooking these regular season games when the ultimate goal is the World Series? I think they understand that every game is an opportunity to like grow and get better and an opportunity to win. So I don't, I don't think we've ever since I've been here, looked at it that way. I think each game we play, we want to take every single team seriously, give them the respect they deserve, and then try to go out and beat them. So I think at the beginning of the year, yeah, I think there was, there were conversations about, hey, listen, you know, they're not rolling out the red carpets for you guys. Just you had a great year last year. Like, you got a target now. Like, you got a little number next to your name, Endicott, here. You're going to get everyone's game. I when we didn't have the number, we want to knock off every team that did have a number. It, it provides a little bit more excitement for the other team coming in. You get a chance to knock off a team that's got a number next to their name. So I think I'm just emphasizing that to them all the time because we're seeing great arms. We're definitely seeing some some better pitching maybe because I think they want to they want to knock us off. So maybe in a midweek game, we're seeing a guy that you wouldn't usually see. 
and you're seeing focus, you're seeing energy that you might not normally have seen in the past. You're seeing it now. So I think we're just reminding them of that. They're seeing it firsthand and they understand every game is going to be a battle. So I love it. I think it's awesome. I think it's, you want to play that way all the time anyway. What are any interesting trends that you kind of seen across college baseball that you're watching? And do you feel like at this point in your career, I'm sure you're always evolving as a coach, but you kind of have your set core philosophies that you feel like will not change with you going forward, or are you always looking to potentially tweak things here and there? I think the things we're tweaking come with the times. Like we're doing a lot more tech, like tech stuff, using the rap soda, investigating is it valuable to have track man, using a lot more video work. We do have a slow motion camera. Are we using it regularly? No, but is it something that we're trying to figure out how to use it for the right time because everything is time consuming? Using Synergy, doing some more video work. I think that's where we're evolving as coaches. All the other stuff, but the human stuff, I think that's always going to be the same. I'm just making sure we're taking care of our guys, teaching them how to play the game the right way, enjoy this amazing opportunity to play college baseball. That remains as, as long as I'm here. But I think as the times change technology, we have to help them understand what's available to them. And also, some guys don't need all guys do get overwhelmed. Some guys get overwhelmed with too much information, try to help them figure out where that line is, where it gets a little too much for them. I'm looking at your schedule now. It looks like a lot of Tuesday, Wednesday games and then nothing till Saturday. Do you wish you had more of a schedule like the D1 teams where it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you kind of line up your starters that way? I like how it is, honestly. Kind of set it up this year. There's a lot of continuity to each week. So today is like our future star day. We have a fairly large roster. So more than half our team is not playing regularly. So our future star day today is Thursday. So we'll have the young men that have pitched a lot against other teams. They'll compete against our hitters who aren't hitting a lot while our starters get lifted and then come out and support them as, as these guys support them. So that creates a cool opportunity at least once a week now to provide an environment for those guys who aren't playing as much to feel like it's going to be a competitive, high-stakes environment. As I play well through this, I'm showing Coach how I'm developing. So I like that still. Obviously, we all have one day off a week, whether it's D1, 2, or 3, which I appreciate. I think we all do. Would I like a three-game set? I love the idea of a three-game set, but we just don't have it yet. At some point when we get it, will I love it? Yes. But I think right now I love the way it's set up and most of it. Uh, but this day today, this future star day is one of my favorite days of the week. Yeah, I like that idea. That's a, that's a really good idea for development. Well, coach, I know you're in the middle of the season off to a great start. So really appreciate you taking the time with us. And we wish you continued success for the rest of the season. No, thank you so much. I love what you guys are doing and keep spreading the, spreading the sport, especially the young people. Thank you, coach. Thanks. Appreciate it. Now it's time for Three Up, Three Down with producer David Yaz. Three Up, Three Down. All right, gentlemen, three questions. Again, three up, three down. We wish you luck. Matt, we'll let you go first this time. If a genie granted you a wish to be able to throw one pitch expertly, would it be a fastball, knuckleball, a curveball, or something else? I think I'd throw a fastball. I think if you're throwing hard these days, especially 98 plus, I think you're going to find yourself in the big leagues as long as you're sometime around this, some, somewhere around the strike zone. I'm going to go with the fastball and the triple digits. I once met a, a guy who had played minor league ball for the, the Red Sox, and his career kind of fizzled out after that. 
so the first thing I asked him was, how many pitches did you have? He went, one, fastball, that's it. <laughs> so it's, it's the Nuke-Lelouch theory of throwing. Anyways, Dan, what would you pick? Didn't Mariano Rivera get by with one pit, like a splitter for his entire career? Apparently, that yeah. that would be the pitch. That that was a dominant, dominant pitch. And Pedro kind of had that tail on his. I don't know what his if it was a splitter or a slider or something, but he kind of had the same a pitch that looked the same way. He did, although I think Pedro had like three pitches, didn't he? he had a curve and whatever. He was superhuman. His fingers were just yeah. the way they bent was just amazing. I was that was I'd want his fingers, I guess. <laughs> Good way of putting it. Dan, you can take this question number two first. Bull Durham, the natural, Bad News Bears. If you could only watch one of them, which one and why? I'd go Bad News Bears. It's it's hilarious to go back and watch that movie. I probably watched it more than those other two just because it's so easy to rewatch. And now I have kids that age and you're coaching and you, it's even more relatable because of the attitudes the kids give you sometimes on the field. Would the movie have been better, worse, or the same if they if Kelly Leak is safe at home at the end? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh man, I'd say better, I guess, because you're rooting for him, right? I like. I say worse. I use Bad News Bears as an example of how that you can let the hero lose at the end, and it's still a great movie because it's such a great moment when. Tanner says, you can take your second place trophy and shove it up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then they pour beer on each other. It's just great. That is Uh, true. Matt, how about you out of those three films? Yeah, it's Bad News Bears with with Buttermaker and and obviously Kelly Leak. Kelly Leak becoming the, obviously starting as the villain, I guess, for lack of a better term. Right. Um, The bad boy. And then becoming the superstar of the team. And I agree. I think the movie is terrific at the end. They throw the trophies at the winning team. I I like it. I I forget what's happening. I I forget the scene, but the Yankees, I think, are playing one of the other teams. They don't have enough players. And the guy's like, two outfielders. I'm going to put them in left and right center. I think that's how you're going to play with eight kids. (laughs) But no, Bad News Bears, awesome movie. My favorite line from Bad News Bears is the comes courtesy of the nerd on the team Oglevy. he he hand, he, he inexplicably hands buttermaker a drink while buttermaker is cleaning pools and buttermaker takes a drink and says Oglevy, this martini is superb as <laughs> <laughs> his kids mixed drinks for him also passes out drunk anyway it's not the most pc movie for their head little league coach <laughs> right, I know, right right all right we will end on an easy one i would suggest Whose turn is it? Is it Matt's turn? Yeah, I think it is. Okay, it's Matt's turn. What's the best thing you've ever eaten at a ballpark? Wow, the best thing I've ever eaten at a right. ballpark. I don't know if that's necessarily an easy one. That's that stuff I mentioned. What's your go-to then, I guess? Is- I'm an Italian sausage person with sausage and peppers. I will say the, the food in Seattle where the Mariners play is off the charts. The options are incredible. And it's not like one of those. It sounds bizarre because I'm going to say it's not one of those like ritzy over the top, but they just have so many options. And it's like not it's very reasonably priced. The way they advertise it is awesome. And, uh, and yeah, I got a really good grilled chicken sandwich there at, oh, nice. uh, in Seattle. So, yeah, I, but Italian sausage is the go-to. Italian sausage is sold on those trucks outside of Fenway Park. Oh. Have, have the biggest gap in terms of tasting great and then regretting it. For the like, rest of your life. <laughs> me, my brothers and I went to a game once, and we noticed that one of the trucks, they had this routine. There were three guys behind, and they would, would say, sausages, spicy. The second guy would say, spicy hot. And then the third one would say, we got the big one, fellas. And he would hold up one of the sausages and wag it in your face. It was it was entertaining <laughs> as well as delicious. Dan, your go-to or favorite food? Ballpark. Yeah, so I mentioned on the last one, I grew up in the Philadelphia area, and Greg Luzinski, I had mentioned him in the last one. So he mm. has Bulls Barbecue mm. at Citizens Bank Park. It's a pork sa- I'm trying to look up the recipe because <laughs> it's a pork sandwich that 
also can include cheesesteak recipe. Oh, so yeah, yeah. It's like a heart attack, but um, that's been the favorite thing I've eaten in a, in a ballpark. Yeah, it's like... Go ahead, Matt, sorry. I was going to say, minor league baseball, Vancouver Canadians, which is where the Blue Jays A-ball team plays. I, I don't recommend this food. It looks disgusting. They sell a four-foot-long hot dog, which mm. is Oof. absolutely gross. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better than the Fenway Franks, which are just yes. too, too small. You get a, you get like three of those to have a full meal. Yeah, Gentlemen, you did great on three up, three down. If you have a question for Dan or Matt or both for three up, three down, you can email me, producer Dave at david.yas at siemensmedia.com. That's david.yas at s-e-a-m-a-n-s media.com. Thanks to Brian Haley for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production. Mm-hmm.